Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. We speak of the grace of God. We often think of saving grace. And by that, you might would think of Ephesians chapter 2, speaking of salvation, that it's by faith through grace. The idea of grace in the New Testament is akin to a gift. And by the way, when you look at salvation in the New Testament, it's also akin to the gift or a gift. Several times in Romans chapter 5, he talks about the free gift. But saving grace is not the only grace that we experience or possess because of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you compare the two, as I said, a moment of grace and gift, you could look at the fact of spiritual gifts. We spoke a little bit on that Thursday night at Romans chapter number 12. Spiritual gift. Every child of God wants coming to saving grace. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. You're sealed, Ephesians chapter 4, as we were looking at in the Sunday school hour of the week. You're sealed into the day of redemption. You're sanctified. Yet also in part of this is a spiritual gift that is given to you. And there are two passages we looked at a little bit Thursday night um, dealing with uh, a little bit of an enumeration of gift. And there are gifts that have ceased, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and there are gifts that continue, Romans chapter 12. And so we can look at those gifts of the Holy Spirit and we can look at them as seeing a grace as well. But then there's, can I call it a general grace that God has given Different than saving grace, different than a supernatural gift. I might call it a general grace, and you might would look uh, in James, um, talking about the Father, that every good and every imperfect gift cometh down from the Father above. There's no variableness, no shadow of turning there in James. And so you can look in a general sense of what God bestows upon humanity also as being the grace of God. So I think of Proverbs. Uh, maybe the 18th chapter. He that findeth a wife findeth a good thing. In that essence, a wife to her husband and a husband to her wife by, by way of implication, that's also a grace of God. And that's not stretching the word either because you can go to uh, Peter in the fourth chapter, First Peter, and, and uh, maybe it's the third chapter, but he's talking about the marital bonds and he talks about uh, being part of the grace of life. That's a general grace that God has given to us. So anytime we look at grace, it's, it's a really complex thing to consider. The Word of God is a grace or a gift that has been given to you. Um, there are some things in a general sense of general grace uh, that are bestowed even upon lost people. I, speaking of James, James was an observer of natural things. Some of you would have really appreciated the opportunity to meet James. I mean, James was into hunting and fishing and trapping and all that kind of stuff. He uses those examples more readily than any of the New Testament writers. And James writes on it that the Lord causes it to rain a former and a latter rain. And when it rains, it rains upon the just and the... What did the unjust man get? What did he have to do in order for there to be a rain descending upon his property? What did he have to do differently than you? That's a grace of God. You know, the reality is you, you think, let me make a couple more here. As you think by relationship of where we are just this evening, 
How about extension? The grace of God applied. I mean, I think about being born into a home. They were young Christians. There's a lot they didn't have figured out. But what did I do to get born into that home? Nothing. In that sense, at least in that positive aspiration, that home that I was born in, that was a grace that God had for me. I'm going to ask you what you had to do to be born. I know, I know we've got naturalized citizens here, brother. And we've got verses. What did you have to do to become an American citizen? Brother, did that work out for every, every one of your former countrymen, all of them United States citizens? That's a grace of God. And the reality is, um, and I, I understand a little bit of the distinction of genetics and stuff, but I could have been born anywhere in this world. Yet I have a grace of God. Let me put the application drive a little deeper. My parents had a profound influence on my life. That's the grace of God. The opportunity, even from an early age, to be reared around the Word of God, might, might I put it this way? That's a greater grace to me than what my parents had. When I was home the other week, I was talking to my mom and dad, and I kind of know about my dad, and I'd ask my mom, she said, I don't think we ever really went to church. She said, unless the church down the road had something going in and stopped and said, hey, we want to take her to church, I never went to church. And can you imagine how my life would have been, dive, dive, I mean, just so different than what it is had my parents not come to the saving knowledge of Christ before I was born? In that sense, I had a greater grace in my youth than my parents did. What kind of grace has God bestowed upon you? Consider that a moment. Again, I'm not just talking about salvation. All God's people would say, yes, by faith I'm thankful for that. But I'm talking about a greater grace in one sense, if I put it that way. A general, yet uniquely specific to you, to us. Grace. When Peter, or rather Paul, writes throughout the New Testament... There's a number of times that he looks at the Christian life and he speaks about it in the theme of a runner. Let me give you a few of those. I won't turn there to any of these. I've got little notations and I'll, I'll give them to you. But I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, this is one where he talks about putting his body under subjection. But the theme is, he said, we run and everyone that runneth, runneth for the mastery. He runneth that he might obtain a prize. You see, it's God's grace given to us at salvation that I have the opportunity in this life to have the very mind of Christ. I brother was giving his testimony a moment ago. The distinction between the believer and the unbeliever has a lot to do not so much that God is hiding his saving plan from them, but rather the blindness of their mind. 
it's a great gift to have the opportunity to be reared in a home that has a nurturing, might I say, driving a, 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 a revelation of some type of truth. We live in a society today where that's all but gone. Spoke to a preacher this week and he was talking about his labors to be able to have a Bible class. And he said, I, I, I did everything I could in the school system. Uh, he, he said, I, I went, I sent letters. I went into offices. All along, I just get a school, in the school time or after school time, just a little Bible class, voluntary. He said, I actually eventually wound up going to the school board meeting. And when they had for open comment, he said, I raised and I gave open comment. And at the conclusion of all that, the school system said, no, we're not going to do it. That might be the only light that some of those young folks in school ever get. And you and I, having received a marvelous gift of salvation, specifically to those that received it young in life, when I run in a Christian race. And Paul speaks on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, if we're going to run it, we'll run it to retain a mastery, a prize. What's the prize? That's Philippians chapter 3. That's Jesus Christ to be like Him. He mentions over in Philippians chapter 2 that he would not want to run in vain. Speaking of the grace in the Apostle Paul's life, he said, I'm counted faithful to be placed into the ministry. And to the Philippian church, he says, Help as I, I preach the gospel, I engage in the missionaries, and I seek to have some fruit among the Gentiles, that I would not have run all this, invested all of this because of the grace of God, that it's in vain because you will not run the race of grace as well. The same is said of Galatians chapter 2. He said that I should run or had run in vain. Keeping with the running theme in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul speaks of finishing his course. What course? The opportunity to live the, 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 the will of God, to experience that and to follow in an individual and specific will of God. That is in of itself a great grace. Sometimes we look at it as being a burden or a, you know, a little bit of eye roll. Oh, oh boy, it's just so heavy. It's a glorious opportunity. Well, no, it's heavy. Heavy is the weight of this world. Heavy is the slavery and bondage of sin. And no, we stand in the Spirit of God, and where the Spirit of God is, there is liberty. I pillow my head tonight at peace and rest in my soul. And that's because of the master to whom I serve. It's a great grace and opportunity to labor and to serve and to run the race. You're there in Hebrews chapter 12. This is one of the reasons, just the linguistics of it. Of all the New Testament writers, none speaks more often of the Christian life and the analogy of a race than the Apostle Paul. You're hearing Hebrews chapter 12. It's one reason I think Apostle Paul likely was the human instrument that God used to pen the book of Hebrews. Notice how he starts out in chapter 12. He talks about a great cloud of witnesses. He said, let us then lay aside every weight and sin which does so easily beset us. And let us what? Run with patience. The what? He's going to use that analogy. The race that is set before us. One of the great truths in chapter 12 deals with doctrinal matters. Adhering to the rightness and righteousness of the, of the, of the truths of the scriptures and, and rightness and righteousness that is found in Christ alone. And then there's a section here in, in verses number 4 through maybe verse number 11. He's going to talk about what happens when we err from that truth. What happens when we err from the race that God has set before us. 
What happens to God's people? He chastens us. Why? The English word is a beautiful picture here. The commonality between disciple and discipleship, they go to the same root, discipline. We discipline to make disciples. If we're a disciple, we should have discipline. And when you and I have erred, I think of Judges, or rather Joshua 1.8, to the left hand or to the right, we move out of the presence of God. We have ceased in running the race in a correct way. God will send corrective measure. And then he picks up the thought in verse number 12. Wherefore? Because we have this grace, because we have this truth, make sure you're running this race with patience that's set before you. Unencumbered by all of these easily besetting sin which weigh upon us. And what does it do? It deters us from running the race. Why don't you look in verse number 12. I just a few things marked here. He says, Wherefore, the understood subject here, you, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. You know, if you go back and look at this, this is once again runner jargon. Runner jargon. You're running. You got his arms moving and pumping. And you get down the road a little bit, and what happens? The knees don't come up any higher. Some of you that spent great time in athletic fields, those hands don't swing as fast as they used to, and you're pressing, and all of a sudden, what happens? The hands are just lifeless. The knees become feeble. It's the same analogy he's given. The only way I have an opportunity to continue in the grace that is the will of God, in the truths of the Word of God, is to be careful to run it without all of these encumbering, besetting sins that weigh me down. And it's important to note that along the way, there's going to be other believers that look at you and I in the race that we're running that need assistance. Their hands are hanging down. Their knees are feeble. Look at verse 13. He then commands another reason, another grand importance. He reminds us, and all of these are imperatives, and they have that running language to them. Make straight paths. That word path is a beautiful picture. It's akin to a wheel rut. Every couple of summers, I go out and buy this blacktop sealer. You know what I'm talking about? And I wash my blacktop. And when I go to wash that blacktop and soap it up real good, you know what happens? My little driveway is just only so yay wide. And I don't know how long that blacktop's been there. At least 10, 11 years. That's how long I've been there. And regardless of the vehicle, when you turn in, the natural way to turn in has left two grooves. You can't see it unless you're looking for it, but when you get water on it, they all flow to those two grooves. I don't know if there's anything to do about it. That's what this word path means. A wheel rut. That's a glorious truth. You're running the Christian life. We have an example found in Jesus Christ. And as I run the path, I need to stay in the path of His leading before me, the one He has run. That's the example given in verse number 1 and 2. But it's important also that I stay in that path lest, lest I deviate and make another path and someone coming up behind me that has feeble knees and their arms and their panting breath and they're wore out and they see an alternate path. 
become convinced that that's an easier path than the ones that they are to trot ahead. It's a wrong path. And Paul, I believe in this analogy, he says, make straight paths. Make a beeline. Don't deviate to the left or to the right. Why? Lest that which is lame be what? Turned out of the way. If I can keep with this analogy, you, you look at the path that lays before us as a child of God. The example given in verse number 1 is Jesus Christ. What, what, what about His path? Well, it was a path of suffering. It was a path of sacrifice. Now you look at the life of Jesus Christ, it was full of sacrifice. It was the path of selflessness. That's just free. That's not even in my notes. You, somebody need to write that down so I can put it in my notes. I can't ever get anything to alliterate. That's what the Lord Jesus' path was. John chapter 4, I must needs go through Samaria. And it preaches the gospel to someone that his own apostles, the, later the apostles, disciples, would not have interacted with her. That's the path that Christ set before us. We're commissioned in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the path you ought to go. Walk ye therein. Yet with weight. A little spiritual laziness. We deviate. And we plow off course. There's always someone behind us. That looks at the path of Christ and says, My soul... That's a hard path. That's an arduous path. That's a... But look here at this path. It goes through the pleasant fields. I can't remember the portion of Pilgrim's Progress that dealt with this. It doesn't go over the stony ground. It goes in bypass meadow. That's it. It goes over by bypass meadow. And we can take here... And you don't have to worry about stones on your feet. It can just be flat and easy. And if you get tired, you can just pull over by the little pond here and you can rest. What a failure our life would have been. Verse number 14, he says, follow peace with all men. This is a reminder to me and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. There's the third verse. Lift up your hands, make straight, follow. It's a glorious example. There's just some things in life that I need to let go of. A lot of time people get down the road, and in particular as we think about the assembly and, and, and the church and stuff, there's personality conflicts. Well, I'm not walking that way anymore. Well, I, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to veer a different way. That's dangerous. I think some of the most saddened times that I can ever remember is to watch two men or two women that, that by their testimony is going to spend eternity in heaven that they can't get along on this side of the veil of sorrows. You know, I, I can look at an unbeliever that is ideologically different than I am, theologically opposed to me, practically opposed to me. And I can chalk all of those distinctions up and say, they need the Lord in their life. That'll fix a whole lot. But sadly, there's sometimes Christians 
genuine I mean, and they have no ability to run the race. You know, I'd submit to you if we get to the point where we can't just follow peace with all men, and that includes believers, and I'm specifically primarily addressing believers, then likely we might not be on the path that Christ is on. We may have veered off some time before. Notice if you will, verse 15, here's another verb. It's a compound verb, looking diligently. If you write in your Bible, circle those two words. This is interesting here to me. Looking diligently, that's the Greek word, episcopeo. What does that sound like to you? Episcopalian. Episcopos, in the noun form, is used throughout the New Testament with presbyteros and uh, poimane. And it's the identifying marks of the pastor, bishop, elder. I didn't put them in the right order. But episcopeo is a word that Bible students ought, ought to readily exercise, understand that's closely related to bishop. Bishop. The primary goal of a bishop is this. He is an overseer. But this passage here, verse 15, is not talking about me or another pastor. He's talking to the believers. You and I, each one of us, have a personal responsibility to oversee our life. The person that can keep you on the path of right and truth is the person that's going to make an awful lot of decisions for you in this life. That's not me. I mean, sometimes I had, uh, I'm teasing about this, but I was talking to the, one of the visiting preachers, and he said, what's your theme? I said, I don't have a theme. It's just a preaching conference this year. Just preach, and hopefully things will fit together. He said, well, I'll have to think about it. And I said, well, if you run out of things, let me know, and I'll play the role of the Holy Ghost in your life. I'll tell you what you preach. And we just had a good laugh about it. The reality is, as I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I'm not legitimately going to be able to say, well, the reason I veered from the path is because of, uh, of uh, uh, Brother Dale. It's his fault. Now, he's got a responsibility to stay on the path. And yes, maybe at times in life he's veered off course. But I still have the same indwelling of the Spirit of God, do I not? There's still a highly illuminated path in front of me. I'm not going to be able to stand to God. Well, it was an easier path, and I just veered off and followed that bud. And if he had stayed on, I'd have stayed on. Two things can be right at the same time. He did wrong, but guess what? You did too. Who's responsible for your walk with God? Who's the subject in each one of these imperatives? Who's supposed to be lifting up the hands hanging down? Who's supposed to be making straight paths? Who's supposed to be following peace? Who's supposed to be looking diligently? Who's the answer? Me! You! I have a chief shepherd. I have an under-shepherd in a sense. But I have a personal responsibility to remain a faithful child of God in the past which He's put me. So what happens? What happens when I veer out of this path? That's the question this evening. Let me give you three things. When I as a child of God and contextually as I look at this, 
He's not talking about lost people. He's talking about saved people. That is the address he's given. He's saying, I want you to walk in this path, walk like Christ walked, set aside all the weights that are going to fatigue you and prevent you, and run with patience just like Christ ran. If you deviate, he's going to correct you, and you should thank God for the correcting hand of the Almighty in your life. It is a manifestation of the love of God, and it is a producer of holiness in your life. And it is an identifying mark that you belong to him. Because he doesn't chasten those that are not his. And then he gives us these four commands while we're in the path. Lift up the weary hands. Stay in the path. Make straight paths. Wheel ruts. Follow peace. Oversee yourself. Supervise yourself. Monitor your actions, your thoughts. And you know, that's one thing I can never do for you. I cannot monitor your thoughts. There's a number of times... In our marriage, my wife and I would just celebrate 18 years that we'll communicate about something and walk away from a conversation on two totally different pages. Does that happen to anybody else? And we'll come back to it and she'll say, well, this is what we said. And I'll say, no, I, this is what we said. Well, we did, but th this is the... Okay, now we've got to get back together on the same page. You know who's responsible for keeping you on the same page of Jesus Christ? You. What happens when I veer? Three things. And he's going to highlight each one of these threes by the word L-E-S-T. Lest. It doesn't mean it has to happen. It means if I've deviated from the path of God, one of the results of failing God in this matter of running the race, this is one of the things it's going to produce. Notice the first of these. Lest any man fail of the grace of God. I don't think this has soteriological implications. I preacher, what's that mean? I don't think he's talking about you losing your salvation. No. You know what? This, if, if you write in your Bible, I'll give you another word. to Circle that word, fail. F-A-I-L. What, what's the activity that the Christian life is associated with in this passage? Thank you. The race. Hanging down, weary knees, ruts, paths, straight. Uh, what does he say in verse number one? Run with patience, lay aside the weights. You know what the word fail means? It means to be out of step. It means to be late. It's the idea of causing somebody else or yourself to straggle behind. God's given you a gift, a number of them, specifically saving grace, a common grace, a general grace, the gift of God. One of the things that happens if I fail to oversee my life and mandate that I'm going to walk where God wants, despite it being a place of sacrifice, of selfishness at all, one of the remarks, one of the dangers if I have failed and veered away is it's going to cause, what's the passage say? Me to fail in the grace of God. You fail in the grace of God, it's, if I can put it this way, it's losing what you could have had. In a sense, you could even articulate it's wasting something God gave you. 
your salvation aside, we can weigh so many things in life. You, you think about, and we spoke at length about this on Thursday night, but you think about the goodness that God's placed upon you. Let me just address this one. We, we spoke of this one already. This, this is one of our illustrations. You talk, take about the marital role. Husband and wife, it's a good thing. That's what Scripture says. Can you waste that? Yeah. Mistreat each other. Be envious of each other. Be hateful towards each other. And instead of having a marriage that would please God and thereby be something that was beneficial to the both of you, what have you got? You wasted God's gift. You think about children, same way. You think about your church. I think sometimes we look at these gifts and there's a whole host of them, folks. Some folks get more upset about wasted money than wasted opportunities. It doesn't, I, mean, I realize there's busyness of life, but, but we look at opportunities to pray corporately together or, or to study the Bible together or to engage in outreach. And there's a lot of Christians who are going to have to answer to God why they arranged or allowed the arrangement of their priorities in the way they did. Don't waste it. One of the things we spoke about in Romans chapter 12 about your gifts is the spiritual gifts that you as a believer have are not eternal. The indwelling of the Spirit of God is, but your spiritual gift is not eternal. You know why? Because you're going to get old. Paul had to go through that in life. Peter had to go through that in life. And their gifts that God gave to them, had they, they saw it through a process of ceasing that God had given the ability to heal individuals by His Spirit and power. And, and yet... There were times later in life and ministry where that gift had gone. God had taken it. And by application, and we're not talking about those necessary spiritual but you think about the opportunities to minister that you have today and you're not guaranteed to have them in 25 years. In 25 years, the overall look of this congregation will have changed dramatically. Am I not right? Some of you will be 95 years in 25 years. We got anybody here that's at least 70 years old? You'll be 95 in 25 years. That's what I'm telling you. The children in the nursery will be 30 years old. Give or take a couple years. Drastic changes. Are you going to be able to do for God what you do now in 25 years in regard to your spiritual ministry? No. If we deviate from the path of God, it won't take 25 years. And we'll have lost something special. Notice the second thing. The second last. You deviate from the path. You stop looking diligently. You stop making straight paths. Notice the second thing, lest any man fail you of the grace of God. Notice the second lest. Lest any root of bitterness spring up, trouble you, thereby many be defiled. One of the distinguishing marks of a child of God that is walking with him is the joy of the Lord. 
You want to know one of the telltale signs of the child of God that is not walking with God? Hint, hint, it ain't, it's the opposite of the joy of the Lord. That word bitterness, it's acrid, the idea is acrid poison. And the scripture says here, it'll trouble you. number of Christians that I have met over the years and they veered at some point in their life from, from, from the path that God had and they just they're distasteful towards anything that anybody, uh, distasteful towards anything that God's doing in the life of anybody. They can't be thankful for a song. They can't be thankful for a message. They can't be thankful for a word of encouragement because they're so full of acrid poison. It's deep-seated. It's a root sin. It has etched its way down into them. I don't think it has to be a permanent state. You can return to the joy of your salvation. But if bitterness is deep-seated in you, it is not God that moved the path on you. You know who moved? You did. You veered from the path of understanding. You left the way. You left the race. God didn't move. Bitterness. Notice second part to that bitterness. He said, and thereby many be defiled. What a hard statement. We could talk about some of the awful sins that Christians commit. But bitterness is one that just so readily sets in deep. And it defiles all those that follow after your children, your spouse. And it's devastating in the way. Bitterness is a hallmark, a mark of one that has failed in the race God has placed them. Now listen, I'm not here sitting there, or standing here this morning saying that every evil thing that's fallen unto you was, well, uh, could not have been prevented to some extent. I'm not saying this, this evening uh, that there aren't some things, justifiable things, and where someone was injured because of something someone else has done. But what I am saying is bitterness is the response to those. You and I do not have to commit the sin of bitterness. I had a dear preacher friend of mine and uh, I hadn't talked to him in a long time because he stopped answering all my text messages, emails like that. And in the last conversation he said to me, he said, I just struggle talking to you because I know you and Valerie have been through some physical things and it seems God has blessed you and my wife went through some things and we have not been blessed. How do you respond to that? The difference is the choice you make with those events. A desire to stay on a path or to veer. But I promise you when you veer to the path, bitterness is in the next step. And it will permeate your being and anybody in your sphere of influence. Notice the third thing. Verse 16. Lest there be a fornicator or profane person. And he's going to highlight an Old Testament felon. And you know Esau, really, you just see 
such an interesting uh, tale in him. You want to talk about common grace appearing to somebody? Esau, Esau had grace to spare, didn't he? Esau had so much grace placed upon him that his younger brother wanted to be just like him. Esau was not just a hunter. He's a cunning hunter. Why, if Esau walked into the average church during hunting season, old fellows want to get tips from Esau. Because he hunted without a rifle. He hunted without black powder. And he was quite successful in his hunting. You remember in his old age, his daddy said, go get me some of that venison. And what a thing to Esau. He knew that he was going to go out and through the skill that he has developed over many years, he was going to be able to do what? Get the game. Why, everybody, everybody in Isaac's tent knew that if Esau went out hunting, guess what? His bag don't come back empty. It's a cunning hunter. He's an outdoor man. He looks the part and he smells the part. With the eye test, he looked like what a man, if you will, in a, in, a, in a very sense, should look like, you know. And then there was Jacob. And Jacob wasn't a hunter. And they were often enemy, one enemy, enemy, uh, enmity is the word I'm looking for, one to another. But who was the eldest? Esau. Esau was in the direct line to receive double the blessing of his brother. Esau was in the direct line to get all the goodies. The Messiah could have come through Esau. But Esau chose a different path. And he took all of that blessing that God had. His birthright wasn't just, it wasn't just the fact that he was born first. It was the promises of God. It was the training of his parents. It's the investment of all their resources. Listen, it was the hopes and dreams and aspirations of his mama and his daddy that have been placed in him. Traded it all. You know what he traded it for? A value meal. Think about that a moment. He didn't trade it for the home-cooked meal. He traded it for the cheapest commodity he possibly could. One of the dangers of walking away Fornication and profane person. Sadly, there's been a minute Christian in life that they just trade all of the testimony, the calling, the, the, the opportunity to minister and to serve God, and they let it all go to seed over something that's so cheap in this world. And Esau's a picture of that. And God likened him to a profane man. Paul is the only New Testament writer that uses the word profane. 
And with every time that it's used in all of it's in the pastoral epistles, but one, every time it's in reference to uselessness. He calls it profane uh, babblings often. I think that's three times. Uh, once he calls it profane questions. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, he calls it a profane person that's without any godliness and righteousness in their life. Throw off the path that God has and you turn to the side. One of the great costs is shallow selfishness. Pitched it all away so I can live this life how I want to. And what did it cost? Because there's always a cost. Cost him everything. And in context, you notice in verse number 17, he says, you know how that afterwards when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with many what? You can go down that path like Esau a little bit. And you can trade it all. If one can say it in their heart, it doesn't really matter. And the reality is, I think once we've deviated a little bit, we can't even really determine how far off we really are. And it will be destructive not only to those in our sphere of influence, it will be destructive not only to the opportunity that we have, but the ultimate destruction is the destruction that will occur inevitably in our life. Paul admonishes them. Run the race. Run it with patience, run it like Christ, and run it without these sinful weights. Why? Because the cost of failing God is miserable. And the only hope that we would ever be able to have, once again reminds me a little bit of Esau, well at least I'm a son of promise. What a sad thing for a Christian to say, well, at least I'm saved. You know, being saved does not deliver you. And there's many of you that know this by experience, by witness. You can have a saved child of God walking in the Christian ways, living for God. And this world just seems like heaven to them. It's not. They know it's not. They just have a joy about them. They've experienced the blessings of God. And I'm not talking about them living in mansions and things. I mean, there's just a peace and a joy and a song and a wonder and a love and a kindness and a charity. That's someone that's walking with God. And then you can have a child of God, a little emblematic of Esau in one sense. He comes to the Thanksgiving service and, well, at least I'm saved. You know who makes that choice? Thank God. It's the person. We think of those children of Ephraim, you know, in the morning hour. We can all have the, the, the possibility in our life to be just like that. Run the race. Don't fail to run it by God let's stand for feet Father thank you for listening if you'd like to contact us please write us at P.O. Box 126 541 Harrisburg, Pennsylvania 
1712 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.